Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello, this is David Eastall, and this is the C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life, as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should. Always playing the finest in indie pop. This week's special guest is going to be Richard Strange. He of Doctors of Madness and one of the most prolific artists in modern time. So I've got that interview that I'm going to break up into three, four or even five easy to digest little segments for your excitement. But to get the party rolling, I think we should play your favourite and mine. This is from the phenomenal rise of Richard Strange and this is On Top of the World. There you go, chart band sounds from Richard Strange, and that's a track titled The Phenomenal Rise of 
Richard Strange. Hello, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. And this week's special guest is Richard Strange, as you probably gathered. He of Doctors of Madness, because I spoke to him very recently to talk about life, love, poetry and all that sort of groovy and sexy sort of stuff. So I've got that interview that I've broken up into probably, I don't know, four sections so that you don't get too, um, yes, I don't know, excited, start gyrating or something. Because we had quality chat. And also for those who are excited to see Mr. Strange live, he will be in Norwich on the 23rd of September performing the songs of Lou Reed with something of a super group behind him on back him. But we won't spoil all the surprises. This isn't Agatha Christie, the mousetrap, you know. But um, yes, he has got a phenomenal band behind him. And um, as I'm sort of chatting away here, I think we should do some admin. If you want to contact me, you can via Facebook, Twitter, just go to at C86show. And also, I've been doing this, uh, the C86show for over two years, and you can find all the archives on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, and Mixcloud. Yes, all four. So um, check them out if there's any indie bands you've ever wanted us here. I've probably got them. Anyway, I think we're going to play one more track by Mr. Strange, and then we're going to have the first part of this interview. This is going to be, um, he says, looking up and looking down, marooned in blue with Jeremy. You knew I was going to play that, didn't you? Marooned in blue The darkest hour is 3.2 Marooned in blue A house of bones is killing you The devil darkness leans and whispers in your ear Radio, the radio is too damn near. Stony ground Marooned in blue The static sizzle is the only sound The blind man screams to no one Now I've seen it all Long girl reaches for her phone to make that call. The outside world just seems so very far away. Like the doors were locked forever on that day
cold blue, vodka blue, gin blue. I drink to kill the catastrophic mess of losing you. December blues outside. I fold up like your crumpled navy dress, eaten to the bones, the bones, the house of bones, the house of bones. Break up, break down. I'm like somebody stepped onto the track in a dream, but it's strapped that it turns real. I run towards the tube to fetch you back, to fetch you back. The bottle's empty. I try to dissolve my memories like soluble aspirin. I'm blue, like painting a bare concrete wall with the slash slogan. Even loses win in the house of bones, house of bones, house of bones. Marooned in blue, the suffering silence seems to swallow you. Tyrannical, it's drowning you. The vicious, vapid, velvet void it enveloped you. The throbbing of your blood destroyed your very point of view. Splendid stuff from uh, Richard Strange with the track titled Marooned in Blue with Jeremy. This is David Esau. This is the C86 show and this is going to be the first part of my interview with Mr. Strange where we had been chatting about life, love and all that kind of groovy stuff. And also I had um, talked about or started to talk about this event that's going to be taking place on Monday the 23rd of September at the Norwich Arts Centre. Richard Strange performs the songs of Lou Reed with something of a supergroup behind him, quite literally. And this is the first part of the interview, and this was Richard's answer to that exciting and insightful comment. It wasn't so much a question, it was just an observation, really, from me. And this is Richard. Richard, take it away. I mean, this is funny. This is, in a way, let's walk the story backwards then because this is this is the most recent thing that's happened to me in a sort of catalogue of kaleidoscopic events over the last 40 years but um yeah i got a call um about three weeks ago from uh, a friend of mine terry edwards a saxophone player who's with near jazz experience he plays with nick cave and polly harvey and uh uh, Tinder sticks and so on, and Start, and he started at UEA with, with the Hicksons. Don't forget the Hicksons. Hicksons, and yeah, a good Norwich band, of course. Yes, alongside Serious Drinking. Yes, yeah, so Terry. Yeah. <laughs> so 
Um, Terry, I've worked with on several things. Uh, recently, he's, he's played on my new album, and he also toured with me last year. But going back, we did the Tom Waits' uh, Black Rider together on a world tour. He was in the band, and I was on stage as a, a singer-actor. But anyway, um, Terry phoned me about three weeks ago and said, what are you doing in September? And I said, well, I've got a new Doctors of Madness album coming out, and uh, I'm going to be in Japan for the first two weeks of September. And so he said, what date are you back? I said, I think I'm back about the 18th or something. And he said, and you know, I thought this was a, a bit of a, an April Fool at the, at the time. He said, how would you fancy doing a UK tour? Richard Strange sings the songs of Lou Reed. And it's just like, of course I would, you know. Uh, and then he said, I've put the band together on the off chance that you would say yes. <laughs> then he said, uh, I've got Kevin Armstrong, who's like Iggy Pop's guitarist and played guitar with Bowie in Live Aid. Okay. Yes. I've got Dave Inby on drums from Kid Creole and the Coconuts. Okay. I've got Paul Cuddyford from Steve Harley and Ian Hunter's band. Okay. <laughs> I've got Florence Sabeva, uh, who's the keyboard player with Old Slick. And you. <laughs> I said, oh, what are we going to do with it? He says, oh, don't worry. I've already got a promoter who wants to do it. He was just waiting for you to say yes. Wow. Things and happen, don't they? We're doing about seven or eight shows in the UK in September. And um, we're playing Lou Reed songs post-Velvet Underground um, up to his death. So everything from you know that first solo album he made before um, Transformer, through Transformer, through Berlin. Uh, we'll, we, we, we won't be dallying too long on metal machine music, I don't think. But no. then we'll be going through Sally Khan Dance and the Bells and the Raven and all that stuff, uh, Street Hassle. So it's an incredible body of work that Lou did. And, and um, a lot of these songs don't get or haven't had the attention they deserve just because his huge hits, you know, whether with the Velvets or Walk on the Wild Side or, you know, um, Vicious or Perfect Day or, you know, Satellite of Love. Those are the ones that are always on the radio. They're the, they're the songs that people know. But My Friend George and uh, The Sword of Damocles and uh, Think It Over and some of the stuff from Berlin, beautiful songs and fabulous songs. You know, some of them are really, really dark and, 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 and dark and dirty. But... Um, it's a lovely body of work to look at. I mean, as I say, we're doing about 20 or 22 of these songs over the course of the evening. Yeah. Well, I can remember very well 1989, which is only, oh, my God, 30 years now, the, the yeah. album that he brought out, New York, because that was kind of one of those, you know, a Lou Reed album coming out during the 80s wasn't, or even the late 70s, wasn't something that you really worried too much about. And then, yeah. and then New York came out, and it was one of those albums that he obviously everything lined up, and it was just yeah. every track on that album from Romeo Had Juliet to Dirty Which Boulevard. We're doing Romeo and Juliet, we're doing that, yep. And, yep. The, and the last Great American Well, which was a stunner. It was just... And then he brought that album out with John Cale, didn't he? The Songs of Dreller. Uh, which, yeah, Songs of Dreller. That was a lovely record too, which was, wasn't it? Which was just phenomenal. And obviously yeah. that was the um, yes, a, a quick kind of relationship with John again. But but obviously... And then, yes, you mentioned the um, that follow-up album with the uh, sort of Damocles, which again was stunning. What was that album called? Was it like Something and Death, wasn't it? Mask of Death, was it called? Oh, God, I can't remember. But it was 
It was stunning because I think he wrote it when his friend had died and it was yeah. one of those ones that, yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean, of course, desperately sad as uh, as we all get older that that song, Sword of Damocles, which is uh, basically about cancer treatment, isn't it, um, is, is more and more pertinent to so many of our friends who we've lost and loved, you know, from... Bowie and Lou Reed himself, obviously, to nearest and dearest, you know, family and and old musician friends. Just so many, you know, passing passing on now. And uh, each day you you have to just count your blessings, I think, and 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 make the most of every day and every relationship because uh, you know we're 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 on a. a, a a finite leash. <laughs> <laughs> this is very true, actually. So, so with this particular project, obviously, all you've said is yes, but you haven't actually done any rehearsals. You just obviously have kind of got... uh, we've uh, recorded one song just for sort of promotional purposes and to make sure that we all got on. And it's uh, we did a song called uh, "My Friend George," which is uh, a great, great fun song. And um, yeah, that's all sounding good. So, because of uh, individual and joint commitments, we're not going to be able to actually get together physically to sit in a room and even knock three or four of these songs around, let alone 23 or 24, until the beginning of August. Then I disappear. Um, and then we're going to have um, about three days rehearsal just before the tour starts. Yes. Well, it was interesting because I've done an interview with Woody Woodmansey from obviously oh, The right. Spiders, and he was saying that when they do their kind of holy, holy, they only get together for about two days beforehand, him and the Sconti and the band, and they just, you know, because of... <laughs> Because of the time commitment and also the money factor, they just have to say, right, let's make sure we know what we're doing and just hit it in three days, basically, and, and so, get it ready. So true. And, 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 you know, this is going to be one of them. And funny enough, I think Terry plays with Holy Holy as well as this. So he's, uh, he's, uh, he'll have a, a lot of the inside scoop on their modus operandi, I think. Well, yes. Well, and especially dear old um, Kevin Armstrong, who is, like you said, he, he, he was at Live Aid, but he was also he was one of you know, the the Bowie guitarist that um, often was the he was almost like the Carlos uh, Carlos Calamar Calamar he was he almost started getting the band together for Bowie didn't he when Bowie decided that there was an album or tour coming up so he he played a huge part in Bowie's kind of life actually yeah I first met Kevin when he was working with uh, another friend of mine Sarah Jane Morris the singer oh yeah uh, who was with the Communards and. Um, Sarah Jane often used to go out with just one guitarist as an accompanist because her voice is so brilliant. Uh, and Kevin was that guy for a long while. Now she's with a, a, a guy called Tony Remy uh, and Tim Chaxfield, who does a, a, a lot of um, uh, the, the shows with her, just two guitars and Sarah Jane. Um, and she also works with an Italian guitarist called Antonio Fortuny. Um But, uh, yeah, I go back that far with... Uh, uh, with Kevin, uh, back to the, again, back to the eighties, I guess, mid eighties, late eighties, and uh, but I've never worked with him personally. I just uh, ships in the night, you know. So really looking forward to that. This it's is just a band. It's like it's like being given the keys to the sweet shop. This band, and that can only be a good thing. That is the, also the first part of my interview with Richard Strange. Plenty more of that quality chat to come, but I thought we should break it up with a bit more music. This is going to be a track titled "Make It Stop." Indeed.
Rock and roll. There you go. I'm basically hyperventilating with excitement. That is more Richard Strange with a track titled Make It Stop. This is David Eastall, the C86 show, and this is going to be the second part of my interview with Richard Strange, who I said is going to be playing, (laughs) I hope you're paying attention to this, in Norwich on the 23rd of September, performing the songs of Lou Reed. And uh, do check it out because he has got one amazing band behind him. But anyway, this is the second part of the interview where I was talking about the creative process and when things, things, positive things line up, as if the planets, the ley lines and all that kind of groovy stuff. And this was Richard's response to that exciting comment by me. Richard, what was, what was your response? I, I, I do a please? bit of teaching with uh, um, uh, uh, undergraduate music students. And one of the first things I say to them is there's two sorts of artists in the world. There's those who say yes and those who say no. And those who say yes are the ones who will go on this adventure and follow their curiosity and, and dare to fail, if you like, and I'm one of them. Yes. There's those who, they know what they can do and they do it really well and that's all they ever want to do. 
Um, you know, that's okay too, but they'll probably never really stretch themselves. No. But look, going back to, to the early years when you first started getting into the being in a band, there's a few bands that come into my kind of orbit that I sort of think, oh, yes, Death, Death School from Liverpool being one yeah. and uh, Doctors of Mad- uh, Madness being another one because I know Attila the Stockbroker was a huge fan of this yeah, of early bad. combo, wasn't he? He still is, I'm glad to say. And, and so are many sort of varied and... Um, uh, apparently unlikely fans, you know, and I hear from them every week, you know, whether it's Vic Reeves or Julian Cope, you know, or Joe Elliott from Def Leppard or TV Smith from the adverts, you know, it's like these people routinely come, oh, God, we used to go and see your band everywhere. And Doctors of Madness are one of these bands. We we were in a weird sort of... um, uh, black hole of contemporary music. Uh, just to contextualise it for people who who don't know, as we formed in 1974, uh, we got discovered in that old uh, Hollywood showbiz phrase in 1975. And I'd always been inspired more by um, writers like William Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg than really by musicians as such. And I, when, when I decided I wanted to make a band, I had a sort of William Burroughsian sci-fi nightmare in mind, which is pretty much what we were, you know. Um, Doctors of Madness, yeah, we, we, uh, we were a four-piece band, formed pretty much in 1975, or we were fully formed by 1975. And we started doing our own gigs, promoting our own gigs around London, and we got discovered uh, quite fortuitously by uh, a guy called Brian Morrison. And Brian Morrison had been an art student at St. Martin's Art School in the 60s at the same time as a band called The Pretty Things. And uh, Brian decided he was going to manage The Pretty Things at college. And then he moved on to music publishing and he published them. And that was the early days of uh, bands writing their own material. And then Brian made a load of money from music publishing because he published Pink Floyd, he published uh, the Bee Gees, he published T-Rex and so on. So he made a load of money and he retired uh, at the age of about 35. But he got bored and someone said, if you're interested in coming back to the music business, I've seen this band, Doctors of Bandits, they're doing a four-week run in a pub in Twickenham, which is what we were doing. And he came along and he just happened to come along on a night that we were pretty amazing and not amazing because we were slick or because we'd uh, chucked a lot of money at the show. But I think it was a case of all our frustration at not having a manager, not having a van, not having any decent equipment, but just trying to make our own luck, if you like. And over the course of these four weeks, the crowds had come and doubled and redoubled. And we had a good, a, a really good house in the night that he came and we were really good. And I think we just excited some because he'd never seen anything like us. When he left music, it was prog rock. Yes. You know, uh, and so 1975, you got a kid there like me with blue hair who didn't really play guitar particularly well and was called Kid Strange. And one of us was Urban Blitz and one of us was Stoner and one of us was Peter Dilemma. And we were <laughs> sort of William Burroughs meets Velvet Underground meets sci-fi comic book uh, fusion it was like nothing else in the world was going on like that and he just got it and he signed us pretty much the next day 
Uh, then we went into the uh, a re- re- rehearsal studio for six weeks. He said, I want you to go in that studio and uh, write songs, work out who you are, tell me about your show, tell me about your lighting, your your your, your movement, your the, the drama, the narrative, if you like, of what your show is going to do. And we did that. And that was all a great sort of learning curve because all of us were, were semi-pro up until that day. We all had jobs, you know. Yeah. Um, and so we did that, and, and at the end of that six weeks, Brian Morrison got the great and the good of the record business to come along, Clive Davis and Ahmed Ertigan and so on, to see the Doctors of Madness in a grotty little rehearsal room in Charing Cross, you know. Um, and we got a deal, and we were up and running, you know. We, we got a, a record deal with uh, Phonogram, Polydor, for three albums. In those days, they would sign you for three albums and for three years or five years, and you'd have a certain security, or at least you'd know that, you know, for the next three years, this is what you're going to be doing. Yes. Um, and, but now, of course, and I'm not someone who decries the modern world at all, but now you've got three minutes to, to get a hit record. Yes, I, I think nobody, everyone I ever speak to have no idea how new bands cope because in, in the old days, and it wasn't the good old days, it was just the old days, but there was a little bit of money when you were in a band to literally, to, to survive, wasn't there? And that Absolutely, was... you got this thing that they called a record advance and this was money they gave you up front to, to make your record, to do your tour and to keep body and soul together. And the understanding was that once you started selling records, they would recoup all this money uh, and you probably wouldn't see any more money for that three years unless you sold 100,000 albums or something. But at least you had somehow you got this three year grace period to learn your craft and to also to decide whether this was what you wanted to do with your life. Um, There was an an element, and it sounds very idealistic, there was an element of artistic development and nurturing of, 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 of young talent, rather than trying to just get an immediate return. Yes, well, it's, well, it's kind of interesting, because I'm obsessed with my kind of watching rock documentary films on, you know, BBC Four on a Friday night and anything yeah, that, yeah. that they throw on Netflix. And actually, one thing that's really often comes out is that a lot of those bands spent years touring and playing and getting it together before they did hit their stride. I mean, there's a few bands who obviously did it straight away, and I suppose the Sex Pistols being the obvious one, but most bands did struggle for a long time. You know, it was surprising, you know, even some strange, well, you know, from the Beatles to Twisted Sisters to, you know, and, and as as for David Bowie, I mean, he floundered in the eight, uh, 60s, oh, well, didn't he? Well, yeah, Bowie reinvented himself about six times, didn't he, before Ziggy Stardust came along and sort of uh, established him. But, it, you know, just to contextualise where we were, this was sort of after Bowie and Roxy music, but it was before punk rock. Yes. You mentioned the Pistols. I remember by the time we were going out on the road and we toured with a band called Bebop Deluxe and that was a, a, a big tour. We supported them and we were playing the big concert halls in Britain, you know, like the Manchester Free Trade Hall and Bristol Colston Hall and uh, London Hammersmith Odeon or wherever it was. Um and then everything was going well. We were getting 600 or 800 people a night in our own right when we were doing our, our own tours subsequent to that. So this is 1976 or something. And um, I got a call from uh, our agent, Martin Hopewell at Cowbell. And he said, look, I've got a favor to ask of you. I'm being driven mad by a manager in London who wants his band to uh, do some gigs outside London. Now, 
you're the only band I could think would even countenance having them on the same bill as you. They're called the Sex Pistols, right? So he said, you've got this gig coming up at Middlesbrough uh, at the town hall. Would you mind if the Sex Pistols supported you? And I'd heard a bit about them, but not much. They'd only done one gig. They'd done St. Martin's Art School. And I knew, you know, there's a little bit of talk about punk rock going on in the music press by then, in the NME and in, in sounds in particular. And um, I thought, well, yeah, what can possibly go wrong? You know, they look like a, 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 a sort of appropriately snotty bunch of kids doing rock and roll. Uh, they're not very good, but nor were we two years ago. So I thought, yeah, that's OK. So we arrived at Middlesbrough Town Hall and the pistols are sort of sitting there in the middle of the uh, auditorium. Um, and they're being obnoxious, as you would hope they would be, you know, and they're sort of burping and, and chatting too loudly and while well, we do our sound check. And then they come on to do their sound check and they're a bit sheepish because they haven't got any gear. And so they said, could we use your amp? Can you use your drums? Blah, blah, blah. So, and by this time, I'd, <laughs> I'd heard that anything that they didn't trash, they stole. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So... You know, we said, yeah, you can use that. I suppose uh, some of us were less keen than others to let them have, uh, you know, access to guitars and, and fragile stuff. But, you know, yeah, but they said, did all right. So they did their sound check. And I thought, well, I don't see what all the fuss here is about. And then, more or less, as soon as the sound check finished, the doors opened and the crowds came in and they all surged down the front. I thought, oh, God, this is, this is odd. They're all coming to see a, a support band. But we had a big, big crowd in that night. I thought I'd just watch this from the side. And to be honest, as I was watching it from the side of the stage by their second song, I knew that it was sort of all over for me. Right. And this was sort of 1976 or something. And suddenly, you know, my assumptions that the doctors would become like any of the old dinosaurs of, of, of rock, you know, that we would go on making albums, in, you know, uh, in more and more decadent fashion for more and more money and playing, you know, getting more and more bloated for the next 40 years and going on holiday to Mustique with Princess Margaret or something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, suddenly that all went pop and it was like, oh, my God, I've done two of these albums. Uh, so we'd done Late Night Movies, All Night Brainstorms in 75. And uh, in early 76, we'd done Figments of Emancipation with John Leckie producing in Abbey Road. But by the time we did this gig with the Sex Pistols, it was like, oh, God, what now? To be continued. I know. The exciting and mystifying world that is rock and roll. We'll leave it there. That's part two. We've got more to come. Anyway, I think we should break it up with some more music. This is going to be... More Richard Strange. I tell you, if you like Richard Strange, this show is solid gold, easy action. I mean, fill your boots. If you don't, well, frankly, Mr. Shank, I don't know what you're up to. But anyway, Richard Strange sings The Carpenters. This is On Top of the World, if only. Anyway, Richard, take it away. I said it. 
Splendid. There you go. That's Richard Strange with the track titled On Top of the World. This is David Eastall, The C86 Show. This is going to be the third part of my interview uh, with Richard when I had been talking about other bands who appeared at the wrong place at the wrong time. 
it was all about timing, really, in music. And um, I just mentioned another group from the 70s who didn't quite make it but had a huge cult status, and that was the fabulous Poodles. You knew I was going to mention them, didn't you? I always do. Anyway, and this was Mr Stranger's response to that other exciting comment. Richard, take it away. And they supported us too, funny enough. And I <laughs> Roddy, Roddy Golden or, or, or Tony Demur, whatever we call him these days. Uh, exactly the same, yeah. And again, they were direct contemporaries of ours. But then at that time, David, we were being supported by Joy Division, by The Jam, by The Skids, by Simple Minds, by Penetration, by The Adverts. Um, the damned were always in our audience, you know. So we were a band that was much loved by a lot of those bands, but we were two years too old. Oh, God, that's so... Um... Yeah, because the one thing I noticed with doing this show was that most bands have that five-year narrative. You know, they, they get together for two years, they sort of... They they eventually get some sound. John Peel would play that single. They'd get the session, which was great for them. They'd get a bit more of a tour around the country and possibly Europe than that first album. Often it was the second album around the fourth and fifth year where things had started to come, you know, come apart. So you're, yeah, you've yeah. got quite a... You, your narrative you know, time-wise, is quite similar, isn't it? It's quite similar. If anything, it's quite a, a bit accelerated on that because we were, in, we were never a band that people thought were okay. We were a band that you either loved, and I still get letters today from people saying, you changed my life, you were the best band that ever took to a stage, or you got people who just didn't get it and, and didn't, want, didn't want to know. We weren't particularly muso, we weren't particularly cute. We were difficult. We were uh, um, abrasive. You know, so a lot of those things that became uh, the paradigm of punk rock. You know, the, the weird names, the blue hair, the subject matter of urban decay and paranoia and political conditioning and and uh, 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 you know. Um, all that sort of stuff, which was our subject matter, that was our stock in trade. It wasn't especially sexy. Mm. Yeah, we weren't doing uh, the Six Wives of Henry VIII on ice, for example. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't going to the centre of the earth. <laughs> exactly. That's what we weren't doing. Um, and nor were we playing the game particularly. We were a difficult band, you know. The 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 the, the music didn't neatly fit into any particular category and so you know it was something that people had to uh, discover and quite often they discovered it quite by chance or because a mate brought them along or because they heard a track on the radio but it was very rarely because the uh, uh, music press who were all powerful at that time were rhapsodizing about us they very rarely were the music press at that time didn't really much care for us. And especially the star writers, the, subsequently people like Paul Morley and uh, uh, Giovanni Dadamo and people like that became huge fans and, and, or, and, and acolytes and, and um, uh, uh, couldn't, couldn't praise us highly enough. But by that time, it was too late. We were, we were dead. Yes. Well, it's kind of, I suppose, the, 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 
the history of music from you know bands like I don't know the Incredible String Band to Comus to to all these kind of slightly awkward bands they do also have an amazing following and people still love them I know I interviewed a member of the Third Ear Band recently because she lives around here and again you know people still adore that music even though it is quite tricky isn't it very tricky that music I saw them many times because they were they were often on at the uh, the free concerts that uh, Blackhill used to put on in Hyde Park with uh, Roy Harper and with uh, Pink Floyd and Kevin Ayers and all that all that mob and uh, Third Ear Band yeah they were great and then they went on and did uh, the the soundtrack for Roman Polanski's Macbeth didn't they yes so um, incredible so when did you know the end was coming with um, yeah by by see by nineteen seventy six. Punk uh, by well, certainly 1977. Punk rock was the only game in town. Yeah. It was all that the record companies were interested in, and all those bands. You know, as I say, despite the fact that they were fans of the Doctors, and you know, the adverts, the Damned, the Clash, the um, Penetration, the Simple Minds, the Skids, all those bands were big, big fans of the Doctors of Madness. But you know, time moves on, and pop music is, as you know, very, very generational. But the thing with uh, a, a generation in pop music is that it's only about two or three years. And if you if you have a sibling who's three years older than you, you might just have a little bit of crossover. A sibling who's four years over, five years older, forget it, you want your own music. Yes, well, I actually, I sort of realised this. That was another thing that came up, was that... That, um, that that kind of trend in music, and, you know, as an example, you know, like there was that indie scene in the 80s, but by 87, it was like, yeah, that's over now. And then the dance scene came on, yeah. sort of wiped that bunch out. And they those people who were in those bands just said, oh, no one cares anymore. Even our fans don't really care. And then, yeah. you know, then you got grunge, and that wiped that out a bit. And then you got sort of Britpop, and that wiped that out. So I, I didn't realise, it's almost three years, isn't it, that yeah. there's this kind of scythe comes in, and it just goes, yeah, you're Time's up, mate. You know. Absolutely, and I, you know, I think that's probably healthy. You don't want these old, gnarled old rock stars hanging about for too long, do you? They're, you know, cluttering the place up. But I suppose what I do slightly appreciate is the people. There's those few people who seem to be able to keep it going. I suppose Bono and U2, I suppose to a degree, people like Sting, and obviously the Rolling Stones being the most obvious one. But yeah. it is, you know, I, you know, as easy as it is to knock them, you just think, God, actually, you did manoeuvre not only the the admin and all that that publishing world, but you also, you know, you managed to keep your fans going. And same with David Bowie in a lot of ways. Because yeah. there was another band from America, I just remember, called Clover, who were going to be really big. Yeah. And they kind of turned up at the wrong time, but became Elvis Costello's backing band for a, a for one particular album, you know, which was his debut, My Aim is True. So yeah. it is kind of, it is kind of, it must be amazing, because obviously, if you're into music or any form of art, you know, you've been doing it for quite a period of your life your childhood etc and then you think right we're ready we're gonna go for it and it's like oh, i'm really sorry mate but the scene has changed it's like oh, absolutely no. no it really is that dramatic in your life i mean um just on that point david it it, it strikes me that there's two sorts of bands uh, or two sorts of musicians um who can carve out a career of any longevity and they're sort of polar opposites and i equate them with a can of Heinz baked beans or an Apple Mac new innovation. So 
The, the highest baked beans is ACDC, is the, the Stones. It is, it is you too. You know exactly what you're going to get with their album, and they never disappoint, and they always do it, and that's why you love them. Then you get the, 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 the Bowies, the David Burns, the Bjorks, um, who change every album, and that's why you love them. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's the Apple Mac sort of strand, whereas the Heinz Baked Beans, what it is on the can, ACDC, doesn't matter whether you hear a record in 1975 or in 2005, it's going to be pretty much the same thing. Yes, this is true. I used to, you know, I still do. I love Motorhead and, and Lemmy. He just kind of stayed with one kind there you of... Go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. That, that, and that's fine. I think if you are that band, you've got to be consistent and you've just got to keep on doing that and you can't deviate at all. You can't, you can't get a little bit experimental. No. And also, yeah. I think you can't disappear. You have to... It's like every 18 months, you've got like, this is the album and this is the tour... And, you know, they just kind of, they work it. There's no, we're going to disappear for five years on any yeah. any form of money because we've got very little. And we might be a little bit more successful next time, but we won't be huge. And But we've got enough fans. And if we can keep going to Germany, we'll be happy because yeah. the, the German audience will come well, and I, buy I, our I, merchandise. Absolutely. And, you know, that's why I count my blessings in retrospect that the Dogs of Madness never had a hit record in the 1970s. Um, if we'd had one hit record, we would probably have been that band who managed to eke out a living over the next 40 years from exactly what you say, going to Germany, doing the T-shirts, repackaging the stuff, becoming almost like a, a, a national treasure in the inane music and the, the anodyne sort of uh, anecdotes that we would we would recount every year as we go out on the road once once more, ever older and and ever less relevant. Yes, but if, look, but when when the band finished, I was just going to say when the band finished, you didn't finish music. You you did solo albums as well, though. Absolutely, and you know that in a way was uh, the 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 Doctors of Madness was a, a wonderful springboard for me into the unknown. I sort of understood what music was like or what was it about, how it worked, that, that model of, of, of contemporary rock music, pop music, whatever it was. I sort of understood that. But when I watched the Pistols from the side of the stage and I knew that um, my future was probably not doing that for another 30 years, it made me go off and do what in education we sometimes call reflective practice. Okay, what have you just done? If, if you're talking to a student and they've just um, uh, uh, delivered a piece of work, uh, and I work a lot with musicians, uh, contemporary musicians, I say, okay, what were the successes of this project? What were the failures? What would you do differently? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? And I was sort of forced at the age of 25, 26, no, 27, 1978, we broke up. So I was 27 years old. And I had to take stock and think, right, what am I good at? I thought, I'm a good songwriter. I'm a good performer. I'm not a great guitarist. I'm good on the telephone. I can sell a project. I can conceptualize a, a, an idea. Uh, and that's what I did. I went off and I thought, and, and I wrote a solo album called The Phenomenal Rise of Richard Strange. And it, this was in 1978. And the premise of The Phenomenal Rise of Richard Strange was it's 
an enhanced present. It's, it's, it's in the future. I set it about 20 years in the future. So it was like a millennial idea. Europe had become a confederation and it was in meltdown. And a chancer who'd worked in show business and in entertainment decided that he wanted to be president, right? <laughs> and that he was going to use all the techniques he'd learned in advertising, in self-promotion, in media manipulation, in, in, in uh, forming alliances and allegiances with uh, people who could do stuff that he couldn't. He was going to become president of Europe. This is the phenomenal rise of Richard Strange. And that's what I did. Of course, it could never happen that a huckster like that could ever become president. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, blimey. Pure prime minister. But, um, you know, that's, that was that idea. And so I thought, I don't want, and nor can I afford to take this out on the road as a band. So I put all my backing tracks onto, on, onto a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder and toured America with a, an acoustic guitar, uh, um, a Super 8 film projector and this Revox tape recorder. And I'd set up and I'd do the show and it was quite theatrical. I'd have films and film clips of political thrillers. And the narrative was that this guy gets elected uh, and once he's in power, rather against the, the, the normal run of things, rather becoming more cynical, he goes from being a cynical manipulator to someone who's quite politicised and thinks, you know what, I could actually do some good for the world in this. I'm going to give people leisure time. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to use robots and technology to give people back le their leisure time. And everyone loves him, except big business and, and the media who put him there start to think he's not playing the game anymore. And they turn against him and eventually he's assassinated. God. So... That's that's the phenomenal rise of Richard Strait. So I was doing that for for two years. I, I made that album. I released it with Virgin Records. Spooled forwards now thirty five years. And last uh, two years ago, I got a call while I was on holiday, and it's a guy saying, "Hi, um, have you got a minute? My name is Steve Homer, I, and I was on on a beach in France." I said, "Oh yeah, hi. Um, what's it about?" He said, "Just to give you a bit of background." When I was 19 years old, I saw you do your show, The Phenomenal Rise of Richard Strange, at uni. I think it was at Nottingham Uni. He said, I loved it, and it stayed with me forever. And I said, that's really nice of you. Thanks very much. He says, no, no, don't go away. I'm now the CEO of AEG Presents, right, the biggest agency in the world. <laughs> he said, I would love you to do The Phenomenal Rise of Richard Strange again. I said, oh, my God, Wow. I literally hadn't given that any thought for, for well, for 30 years. It came out in 1981 or something. Um, so, yeah, 35 years, whatever it was. He said, would you be interested if I got you some gigs? I said, yeah, I, I actually would, because I think it's really relevant now. This was just, you know, Trump had just been elected and the world was 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 going bad. <laughs> and that's... Uh, yeah, that, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. So he said, OK, leave it with me and we'll fix you up some shows for next year. This being last year now. And so what happened was I got very ill last year and I thought I wasn't going to um, uh, maybe even see see the end of the year. I was, I was, I was very ill, but I'm OK now. Thank you. Um, and I thought two things. I thought I still haven't made the album that I want to make. And I've never really done the phenomenal rise of Richard Strange uh, as a, a, a semi-theatrical show uh, that re responds and, and references what's happening 
today, it was always a slightly retro show or it's a fantasy show rather than uh, now it's a documentary. Yes. Um, So I put that show together um, as I came out of hospital. And again, I got Terry Edwards to play and I got um, some brilliant musicians to to do it with me. And by which time Steve Homer had set me up uh, a debut gig after 31 years of uh, not having done this was with Nick Cave and Patti Smith in Victoria Park in London. The world of Richard Strange, it is particularly, yes, bizarre and amazing. So anyway, all good things come to those who wait. Anyway, well, not always, but sometimes you hope. But we're going to break that interview in there, and then we'll possibly have more chat. But this is going to be Deathbed Diva. You're going to love this. the curtain in the midst of your applause and by the time they turned the house lights on they were heading for the doors your name's on every billboard and in every magazine well your shadows a reminder of the places where you've been
Indeed, Cool Sands from Which is Strange with a track titled Deathbed Diva. And um, I'm not sure, I'm slightly guessing here, which isn't good at all, but I think this could be material from his new album, but I might be wrong. Anyway, this is going to be the last part of the interview. Um, this is going to be sort of what we refer to in the trade as bonus, so I'm not going to break it up too many more times, but this is uh, the follow-on from that last part where he was talking about touring the incredible or the phenomenal world of Richard Strange. I wished I'd made made more of a note of that. Yes, the phenomenal rise of Richard Strange. And anyway, this was Richard talking about that particular tour. Richard, take it away. And then we toured it with the uh, with the um, psychedelic furs last year. And it was brilliant. My God, that is an extraordinary story. That... So that, that's incredible. And then because I was ill last year, um, I thought I've got to write an album that the Doctors of Madness would have written in the current uh, uh, political climate. And I've got to describe the narrative of what's happening now. Now that I'm knowing what I know about music and about songwriting and, and about singing and, and making records and stuff. So I really got my head down uh, and, and, and wrote uh, these nine new songs that are on this new album. Yes. And, the, and you, with your... Producer from back then, John Leckie. Well, this was the extraordinary thing. I said to John, uh, and I hadn't worked with him. I'd stayed in touch with John, but I hadn't worked with him since 1976. I said, I really want to do another Doctor Madness album. I want to do it with you, and I haven't got any money. It's going to be self-financed. It's an indie record. Um, uh, but I really believe in the songs. He said, well, send me the songs. That's the first thing. So I said, he said, these are brilliant. These are brilliant songs. Let's do it. I said, I can give you 1,200 quid. He said, that's not going to keep us in cocktails. <laughs> Absolutely right, it's not. Will you do it? He said, yeah, let's do it. And so we did that in uh, January and February this year. And then what happened, which was so lovely, was that a lot of fans came out of the woodwork and said, I want to be on it. So Joe Elliott from Def Leppard, who's just sold 100 million records, so I want to be your backing vocalist. Excellent. Got a residency in Las Vegas, he thought. Yeah, Let's exactly. Put that to one side. Exactly. <laughs> and he is the loveliest guy. He said, we used to come and see you every gig you did in uh, in Yorkshire. Excellent. You know, you were the band that made me want to form a band. And then uh, Sarah Jane Morris, Terry Edwards, Steve Boltz Bolton, who was, uh, um, he, for a while, he was the guitarist in The Who and with Paul Young and Atomic Rooster, and he played with Scott Walker. And so... They're all on it. Um, and uh, my stepdaughter, Lily Bud, who's a brilliant young protest singer, she's on it. And and, um, and my two Japanese musicians, uh, uh, Susumu and Maki Uke, who live in Tokyo and I always work with either here or in Japan, they're on it. So it just sounds amazing. I'm so thrilled with it. We've got a single coming out in July and the album comes out in September. Blimey, this is quite extraordinary. Did you feel, did you have a bit of a Bowie uh, Black Star moment during did, that period? Yeah, I did. Well, when I tell you the, the titles of the songs, I mean, the, f the first song I wrote is This Is How To Die. Right? <laughs> then then um, looking at the, the broader political landscape, Make It Stop, uh, So Many Ways To Hurt You, the album's called Dark Times, uh, there's a song called This Kind Of Failure, there's a song called um, uh, uh, Sour Hour. You know, it's 
it's about contemporary Western civilization, uh, as, as I see it. Um, but they're great songs and they're really catchy. <laughs> <laughs> but do you, I mean, do you sort of sometimes sort of look, you know, sort of just glance over to seeing, you know, like, you know, Bowie and his life and, and all those changes he did from, you know, not just the 60s period, obviously, but, you know, when he sort of got into his stride and every album seemed to, you know, he did an album a year during the 70s yeah. and they seemed to change and then he was doing, you know, theatre, then he was doing film, then he was experimenting with this type of music and that type of music and then yeah. relocating. Do you sort of feel a bit like he, you know, he, he was a bit of an older brother to you and an inspiration? Very much so, you know. What I loved about Bowie, and I think what so many of us who loved Bowie back then and, and, and continue to love him, was the way he consistently and continually looked outside of music. His music was never only about music. You know, he was someone who read books, who went to the theatre, who watched films, who painted, who, who loved contemporary dance, who loved conversation, you know, um, loved poetry and... and 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 would educate him, himself uh, in the knowledge that no no great pop music or no great rock music is only about rock music. You know, you think about Bob Dylan or Bowie or Lou Reed or, you know, he's not talking about the chords that he's playing. He's talking about the world outside, and and he's an observer. Yes. Jacques Brel, you know, Jacques Brel, Nick Cave, uh, whoever it is, Patti Smith, uh, David Byrne, all these people I love, Lou Reed, you know. They're, they're, they're looking outside of music uh, and channeling the world into their music. They're not channeling just music into music, which would be so boring. That, in a word, would be pop will eat itself, you know. <laughs> yeah, this is true. Well, it's interesting because in this area, well, there used to be a guy called Bruce Lacey who was kind of yeah, in the uh, 50s and 60s. Professor, did a, professor Bruce, Bruce Lacey, if you don't mind. Yes, absolutely, the professor. And I remember, you know, seeing a lot of his kind of performance stuff, often with him naked, running around fairs and festivals. And his yeah. daughter, who's a similar age to me, saying that, that I remember she said that, you know, Bowie once came sometime in the 60s, this was, to see one of his kind of little kind of performance art pieces. And I always thought, God, yeah, Bowie did, you know, tap into so much. It wasn't just the Lindsay Kemp stuff. It was all the other. And he also loved Comus as well, this other very odd That's little right. folk band, because there was a, one of the members live around this area. And he said, yeah, Bowie used to come and watch us all the time. He loved us for a, you know, a period of time. We were his favourite band. It's like, wow, yeah. he really did discover more than Hermit's Hermit, really, didn't he? Yeah, well, I, I mean, that's the funny thing, because I know Bowie was involved with the uh, the Beckenham Arts Lab back in the 60s, and, of course, I suppose my equivalent of that was uh, the, the club I opened in the 80s, Cabaret Futura, which, again, was a mixed-media, multimedia, cross-disciplinary, hedonistic, weekly gathering in Soho. But in that gathering i put on poets i put on dancers i put on music i put on uh, a, a new art form at that time video art you know just started um stand-up comedy and stuff like that and put some brilliant people on you know that i just my criteria was, was always do i like it not will when anyone else like it. i never announced who i was putting on i put on about six or seven act, acts a night and I put on Depeche Mode and Soft Cell and the Pogues, and, you know, all doing their first gigs. I put on Keith Allen. I put on uh, poetry and, and, and film and dance and stuff, uh, performance art. And, you know, that, was, that taught me a lot. And out of that, for some reason, I got asked if I wanted to be an actor. 
And then I was up and running again, you see. But I'm a failed rock star, David. But thank God I'm a failed rock star because otherwise I wouldn't have worked with Tim Burton and Jack Nicholson and Harmony Corinne and uh, Gavin Bryars and Frank Zappa and Tom Waits and the Tate Gallery and um, Harry Potter or, or whatever else it is that I've done over the last 40 years if I'd just been knocking out that one-hit song that we had in 1975. <laughs> Yes, this is true. You'd have been, you know, that would have been your not quite hi-ho silver lining because obviously Jeff Beck was a very good oh, guitarist. No, you're not far off. I'll tell you who, who it would be because one of the many things I did in the last 30 years, I did a, um, a German TV programme every Friday night in Munich. Uh, I played an English butler who spoke very bad German, something I did very well. Uh, and every week they would get a guest on uh, and the guest would pretty big international names, you know, it was Sophia Loren or it was uh, Omar Sharif or John Cleese or the Spice Girls or the Bee Gees. But I remember once uh, uh, they invited Peter Sarsted to come in. And this was in probably 1995. And, you know, before he even plugged in, I knew what song he was going to sing. And he did. <laughs> you know, and it really was where do you go to my lovely one more time and you know and I just thought oh my god that could have been me <laughs> you know, and that is my idea of hell on earth now it's not to knock the song or the singer it's just to knock the life it, it just wouldn't agree with me at all because you know I've been so lucky I've written an opera with Gavin Bryars I've worked with William Burroughs I've worked with Tom Waits you know I've worked with Robert Wilson and um, I've done Hamlet as a world tour and, and you know, I'm doing this Lou Reed thing, you know, and my life is charmed. And I've got a new Doctors of Madness coming out, which is the best album that I've ever made in my life because of the journey that I've been on. Yes. And it must be amazing because obviously when you mentioned the Sex Pistols, I do remember that story that Steve Jones, who has a radio show now, doesn't he, in L.A., yeah. he had, I think he had Woody Woodmancy on and the drummer of Bowie and obviously he's he gave him 200 pounds he said Look, I'm really sorry but we we stole quite a lot of gig uh, gear that night we you know when you were playing in London somewhere and I've I felt bad ever since so here's 200 quid for it back well, enough, they did not nick, nick 200 quid for me they nicked 12 quid out of my pocket and Steve also he must be uh, uh, uh he must have had some sort of um uh uh, Damascene conversion, I think, because he was very eager to pay back the money he nicked from me that night in Middlesbrough. Um, and funny enough, <laughs> I'd already been paid by Johnny Rotten, who thought that he'd nicked the money that night. But Malcolm McLaren um, assured me that it was Steve who'd nicked the money that night. And so I took it from Malcolm. And I fronted Steve out. I said, look, I just found a pair of trousers, Steve, that I haven't worn for 42 years and 12 quid's missing from the back pocket. <laughs> this was in L.A. This is on his show. And he laughed. He said, yeah, fair cop. And he gave me $50 on, on air, you know, so that was fair enough. So I did all right in the end. <laughs> well, that's with interest, isn't it? So, yeah, look, yeah. Your, your, you know, your life is quite phenomenal. Did you... I mean, luckily, you've managed to archive a lot of it, which is kind of one thing that a lot of artists really like to do. And, and I think Cherry Red Records has brought out compilations, haven't they? So you've managed to keep hold and, and track and, and sort of have ownership of the music you made. Yeah, pretty much. And that, that was another lovely thing. I mean, last year, or, or, or was that two years ago, 2017, again, Cherry Red said, look, um, we think time is right for... A, re-assessment uh, of Doctors of Madness, uh, would you like us to put a 
three CD uh, box set together with some bonus tracks and a nice booklet and stuff. And I said, you know what, that would be really lovely. Uh, uh, you know, th at this time of my life, that would that would mean a lot just to have all those songs together and to hear them as they were uh, played and remastered and stuff. Uh, and so that came out. And the next thing I know, The Guardian are phoning me up and saying, uh, we'd like to do a piece on you because you are the missing link between David Bowie and the Sex Pistols. <laughs> and I'm thinking, yeah, that's not bad to have on your tombstone, is it? No, no, it's quite good. Because <laughs> you did a book many decades ago now, well, yes, um, your, your, your memoir. You must yeah. be tempted to kind of re-edit it and bring it oh, up to date. God. You know what? I wrote that in 2001, so that's nearly 20 years ago now, 18 years ago. So much has happened in that 18 years. I mean, basically, I've worked with Martin Scorsese. I've done events for the Tate Gallery. I've done this opera on William Burroughs with Gavin Bryars. I've worked with uh, Tom Waits on um, uh, the, um, the Black Rider with Marianne Faithful. I did the Frank Zappa opera, 200 Motels. Um, I've done stuff with Annie Hogan, which is lovely on her new album. Worked with Johnny Brown on plays. I did a um, a, a series of uh, chat shows uh, for a homeless charity called The House of Barnabas. And my guests on that were Mark Arman, Peter Capaldi, um, artists like Gavin Turk and Cornelia Parker, Brian Cox. I mean, I've just been so incredibly lucky, David. But, you know, as I say to my students, those who say yes and those who say no. Yes. And also, there was quite interesting, many decades or years ago, I went to see a guy, I think his name called Michael Reynolds. He built earthships in the middle of the desert made out of um, basically <laughs> tires. Already, already I love him. <laughs> tires and cans and bottles. And he said, you know, he, you know, because he was a very experimental person and they were completely off grid. And he said, I want the freedom to fail in life. And that has given me the, the kind of inspiration to do what I do. Because you can't, you can't get it right the first time, but you can hopefully get it right the second time. Right. And he had lots of amusing stories about all these shit things, you know, these kind of homes he built, you know, which would just get so hot that you would literally boil in them. And then he said, right, the second time, the next time I'll, I'll learn from what I did wrong and put it right. And, you know, these earthships are amazing. And you yeah. must have a very similar philosophy to that. Absolutely. That is mine in a nutshell. I mean, it's the Samuel Beckett thing. Try again, try harder, fail again, fail better. Yes. You know? um, and this is one of my lectures to my students is, putting the fun into failure. With Young people today are quite risk-averse because they've been fed this lie that the only thing that matters is success and being beautiful and thin and young and successful and all that. But you will never, as Bob Dylan said, there's no success like failure and failure is no success at all. But you do not get success without going through that iterative process, especially in music or in, in the creative arts, of trying stuff out finding why it doesn't work, refining it, tinkering with it, getting it to the point. I mean, that's Bowie in a nutshell, isn't it? Fail yes. again, fail better. Yes, well, when you listen to his 60s work, it is quite funny. Happy <laughs> <laughs> easy, man. Yes, it's great. So what would you, I mean, it's a bit of a boring question, but what would you say to your kind of an 18-year-old self who was kind of starting out in the creative process? You know, those kind of things that you thought, wow, I really wish I'd just remembered that that one thing someone if if only someone could have whispered that in my ear if. Uh, I, I think it would be this thing about 
risk-taking uh, being the flywheel of creativity. Don't, tell, don't let anyone tell you you've failed. Uh, just learn from everything that you do. Find out if it's something you want to try again or whether your, your lack of success at it uh, has put you off for life or whether there was something in that process of making that work that you really enjoyed and you just think, I know why that didn't go quite right. I can do that better. Whether that's acting, whether that's putting on uh, uh, events, whether that's writing music, writing a book, teaching. I, you know, I, I'm a great believer in, 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 in self-improvement and, and learning from others. And also that there is no shame in collaboration. This idea of the, the romantic idea of the artist as a solo a uh, romantic figure in a garret who starts with a, a blank canvas or a blank piece of paper and creates the world uh, with his own hands. In some art forms you do, but music tends not to be one of them. You know, work with other people, work with filmmakers, work with great producers, great instrumentalists, if that's not your thing. Um, everyone now consumes music visually. Uh, but there's absolutely no reason why someone who writes a beautiful song should be able, be able to design a record cover cover or, or, or hold a camera straight. You know, when you see a Martin Scorsese film and you watch the credits at the end, he doesn't also do the catering and the driving and the lighting and the, and the hair and the makeup. No. That's what he does best. You know, he's a writer-director, sometimes a producer. But he doesn't say, I'm going to be in my film as well. No, he's not Clint Eastwood. It's Dr. Neesmith, that's right, uh, luckily. And, um, uh, you know, collaboration, I'm a big, big flag waver for collaboration. I'm a big, big flag waver for learning to live with failure and learning to live from failure. Yes, I think that's, we, we don't have enough of that. And that's, that's something we've got to embrace. Yeah. Absolutely. And look, I mean, I have to say, your year does sound quite magical. And you must think, blimey, if someone had written this as a sort of Hollywood film, it would have got thrown out. It, it, it's so funny because I do a one-man show called An Accent Waiting to Happen in which I, I pack up a suitcase with a laptop, a guitar uh, and a, a copy of my book. And I, but basically I tell them stories about uh, stuff that I've done. I sing some songs and I show them some film clips. And even while I'm doing it, I can't believe that this is my life that I'm talking about. It's like some Zettel uh, yeah, Zettel figure, you know, who, um, uh, uh, you know, is always just on the edge of frame in any historical documentary. <laughs> uh, yes, God, um, that was a classic film. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I think, yeah, I did work with Martin Scorsese and Jack Nicholson and Johnny Rotten and Tom Waits and uh, William Burroughs. You know, I did. And I think, you're kidding. Come on, tell the truth. No, but no, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's good. Those who say yes. Yes, you say yes. <laughs> uh, probably, probably the most graphic um, uh, example of that I can give, I, I used to do quite a lot of uh, commercials, TV commercials, as, as, as an actor when uh, I couldn't get arrested as a musician. And I used to do quite a lot in Scandinavia. And um, there was one director... Uh, who phoned me up and I knew him so well by this point that 
He'd phone up and say, are you free on such and such a day, such and such a day to come to Oslo or Stockholm or something? I said, yeah, 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 we can do that. He said, OK, we'll fly you out the day before and uh, we'll stay on and have a nice dinner the day after. I said, great. And just as I'm hanging up the phone on one of these conversations, he says, oh, you can ride a horse, can't you? <laughs> you think, how hard can that be? <laughs> if, you, if you've been on a bike, you've been basically yeah. on a horse, haven't you? <laughs> Very hard, as I found out. But of course, I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." A horse, you say? Yes. Okay. Okay. See you on Tuesday. Yeah, um, that was painful. Yes, I know. <laughs> I know. Those, those, that donkey derby experience at Blackpool yeah, or Pontons just—it didn't slightly sort of, uh, yeah, translated it to a horse. I know they're so big as well, aren't they? That's the frightening well, thing. No, the funny thing was this: because all all, all commercials are basically um, a, a visual gag of some sort. This was actually a Shetland pony that was no bigger than an Alsatian dog, and I'm six foot four. <laughs> but these things are just muscle and attitude, these horses, these little ponies. So, you know, it wouldn't go, it wouldn't stop, it was throwing me, it wouldn't turn, it wouldn't walk. You know, and we were doing a, a night shoot outdoors in Oslo, I think it was, in the middle of winter, and it was uh, a sobering experience about <laughs> saying yes to everything. <laughs> God, I have to try and find that on YouTube now. Oh, no, don't, please. <laughs> and that is going to be the last part of my interview with Richard Strange. A huge thank you for Richard, to Richard for giving me his time. And um, as I said, he's going to be playing in Norwich on the 23rd of September, performing the songs of Lou Reed. Check it out. It might just change your life. And as I said, if you want to contact me, you can via Facebook, Twitter. Just go to at C86show. I will be there. And all these shows have been archived over two years worth. They're fascinating. So you can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud and Podbean. Yes, all four. Anyway, that is it. And I'll leave you with a little bit more music from Doctors of Madness. This is Waiting. Have a great week.
Please don't shoot the pigs. Let's go. 